You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Today is Tuesday, August 13th, 2019. This is the Hayek Program podcast. I'm Jamie Lemke. I'm here today with Brian Kogelman, Assistant Professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Maryland. Um, also director of the philosophy, politics, and economics undergraduate major at the University of Maryland and faculty affiliate at the Ed Snyder Center for Enterprise and Markets and my colleague, affiliated fellow at the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Studies in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. Wow. Hi, Brian. That was that took a long time to get to actually greeting you and saying hello. Yeah. But thank you for joining us on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. You have done quite a lot in the short period of time that you have completed your PhD and uh, entered the professoriate. The profes- professoriate. Are you correcting my pronunciation? No, I was, I've never heard the word before. Oh, well, so. I'm an excellent educator, it's so fa- you're welcome. It's fancy. For the education. Um, okay, so let's just dive right into some questions here. Mm-hmm. Um, being a philosophy professor, it has this wonderful mythology in pop culture, and it's always these very eccentric people with uh, wild sweaters, and they're <laughs> staying up late at night, pulling their hair out, and thinking of their pontifications for their next day's lecture. Um, <laughs> is that an accurate reflection of your daily life, or what is it really like to be a professor of philosophy? I actually, I actually go to bed very, very early. Uh, <laughs> Around nine o'clock usually. So, what about the hair pulling? Um, well, my hair is usually very, very perfectly quaffed, so none of that either. Uh, it's it's the same as it's the same as being any other kind of professor. So, you split your time in in three different three different directions. So, you do your teaching, right? Teach you know two classes a semester. Do service to the university in any way you can, and uh, and you focus on your research. So you're supposed to write papers and books about philosophy. And what is philosophy? What does it mean <laughs> to do philosophy to be a philosopher? I know I sound like I'm messing with you right now, yeah. but I'm not but we've had these conversations before during Adam Smith meetings yeah. about the way what it means to be a philosopher has changed over time and what it means right. in the modern day and what you're bringing to that to that work and to your students and your research. Mm. So it's actually it's very interesting because even among philosophers it's a, it's a controversial question about what counts as philosophy. So there's a couple different answers, and I think some of the answers are better than, than some of the other ones. So uh, a standard answer is philosophy focuses on three different questions. So the, the three questions are what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful? Uh, it's kind of poetic, really. So it is, yeah. In terms of what is good, philosophers ask questions about ethics. So what should we do? What's permissible or impermissible for us to do? What constitutes a good or worthwhile life? Um, in terms of political philosophy, which is something I'm interested in, is what should our social and political institutions look like? What are acceptable levels of inequality in society? 
And then in terms of what is true, those are the fields of metaphysics and epistemology. So metaphysicians asks, you know, what, are, what's the, what fundamentally constitutes reality? What exists? An epistemologist asks, uh, ask, you know, what is knowledge? What can we know? You know? What are the limits of knowledge? And then the final question, what is beautiful? That's the realm of aesthetics, which is actually not practiced a ton among contemporary philosophers, but that's the study of art, right? the study of beauty. So that's one way of thinking about what philosophy is. I don't really like that answer. I think a better answer is to think about uh, the origins of the field of contemporary philosophy, to, to think more about rigorously about what philosophers do. So it used to be the case that philosophy just meant all areas of academic inquiry. Any body of knowledge was philosophy. So. Aristotle was a philosopher, not because he just asked questions about ethics and metaphysics, but biology was a part of philosophy. You know, economics, political science, sociology, these were all part of philosophy. Isaac Newton, when he wrote about physics, was a philosopher. And Adam Smith was a moral philosopher, not just because he wrote the theory of moral sentiments, but because he wrote The Wealth of Nations. That was considered mm -hmm. philosophy at the time, too. But over time, what counted as philosophy slowly got whittled down and it got whittled down as these other parts of what counted or constituted philosophy they became more rigorous so they got these different methods that allowed the fields of inquiry to be uh, pursued more effectively so as economics became more formalized it started it stopped being a part of philosophy it became its own certain field so in a sense philosophy is what's left over now so philosophy are is you know, those sets of questions such that the, the methods of inquiry aren't sufficiently sophisticated to, to constitute its own independent body. Well, so and this might come up again later, mm -hmm. but also philosophy has this connotation of being a normative discipline. Yeah. And I think a lot of folks working in other fields that, as you pointed out, would have previously been considered philosophy. Yeah. And like, I, I, my doctorate is in economics. I'm a doctor of philosophy yeah. because of that training. Yeah. Um, but still, th there's that idea that normative is somehow something sloppy. So we should try not to be that. <laughs> sloppy. Well, I don't, I don't know about that. Um, I'm not, I, I think there's a lot of... So, so just to get some terms clear, by normative we mean claims about what people should or what people ought to do or what our institutions ought to look like. So when you're telling someone to do something you're making a normative claim. And a lot of what philosophers do is they do ethics. They think about, you know, what is morally required of us, what is morally forbidden for us to do. I don't I don't necessarily think that other disciplines think normative questions are sloppy. I just don't think they know what kind of tools or methods to use to approach it, right? So you can't empirically test a claim like murder is wrong. Um, you can go around and ask, you can do surveys and ask people, hey, do you think moral, you know, murder is wrong? But even if you did that, it's not clear what that would tell us about the truth of the claim that murder is in fact wrong. So I'm not sure it's sloppiness. I'm just, I think it's more, we don't know how to leverage ourselves into even giving an interesting or compelling answer to the question. Yeah. Well, and I think the confusion that there, that normative work contains inherently some degree of sloppiness comes from this very low-level philosophy of science where mm. a lot of folks don't think very seriously about 
um, that aspect of their methods and what the scientific method actually is. So mm. there's this kind of um, back of the mind, uh, kind of quick heuristic people go to positive is the realm of facts and normative is the realm of opinions. Yeah. So then if it's opinions, you can just say whatever the hell you want. Well, it, it's interesting you say it. So philosophers for a time fell into that same sort of conceit. So um, one subfield of philosophy is philosophy of language. And what philosophers in language ask is, you know, what makes a sentence meaningful? What gives a sentence meaning? So that's a question about semantics. And one view, which is no longer really a tenable view, no one adopts anymore, but in the mid-20th century, people called logical empiricists, other people called them verificationists, said uh, sentences are meaningful just in case we could empirically verify them, right? So that view fell out of favor, mostly because the theory itself is not empirically verifiable, so it's in itself self-defeating. But yeah, there's certainly a lot of that sentiment in the academy, not only within other disciplines, but within philosophy itself for a period of time that is skeptical towards normative questions. Okay, let's transition to talking a little bit about some of your work. Mm -hmm. um, so... You're s you have an incredibly impressive CV. I was reviewing it before <laughs> this conversation today. Um, so I have to commend you for, for all that you've done. Um, in addition to being impressive in terms of all you accomplished, it's diverse and it's interdisciplinary. So if you had to distill it down, what are kind of the critical threads, the core themes? How, how would you describe what you are working with and the ideas that you're working on. Yeah, so um, I don't think there is necessarily um, a big unifying theme. I think there's more of a unifying method to asking a lot of different kinds of questions. Okay. So one thing that I think separates me and a lot of the people uh, who also got their PhDs at the University of Arizona and also the, you know, the current faculty there is uh, we think that a lot of philosophical questions are important and need to be answered, but we think that f the tools of philosophy alone aren't sufficient to answering them. So if you want to give good, interesting, compelling answers to a lot of questions about, you know, uh, what should our institutions look like, you know, what, what institutions are going to make the best decisions, what institutions best utilize existing knowledge, you know, what's, what's an acceptable level of inequality, you know, the armchair is important for sort of figuring out what our intuitions actually are, but you need some economics, you need some political science, you need sociology, history, anthropology, you need all these other different disciplines to give good, compelling answers to these questions. So, you know, I've, I've, I've asked a lot of different questions, I'm going to ask a lot more questions going forward, but for me the important unifying theme is lots of different methods, you know, no one subject or discipline has the, all the answers. We sort of need to combine them and work together to think through hard problems. You have one forthcoming paper in particular that talks about the future of political philosophy. What, what's the actual title? Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> future of political philosophy is in the title. Yeah, future of political philosophy. Something about <coughs> non-ideal and ideal theory, Yeah, I think, is in there. So you had this forthcoming paper on the future of political philosophy, and your core argument in there is that a productive direction that you would advocate for future work in political philosophy is to be non-ideal mm -hmm. and west of Babel or Babel? 
the Babel, like the Tower, Babel. tower yeah. of Babel. Yeah. yeah. Like my babbling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so those two uh, categories that you separate out, ideal versus non-ideal, mm-hmm. and west of Babel versus east of Eden, yeah. can you walk through that for us? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so a lot of political philosophers, when they theorize about what our society should look like or what a just society would be, um, they often have to make some claims about how institutions would operate. So how would democracy work out in a just society? Or how would capitalism or socialism work out in a just society? And one thing they do when they think about that question is they assume that persons are morally good, that they don't have the same moral flaws that you and me uh, unfortunately have. So I try to be a good person, but there's a lot of shortcomings. And the idea is, look, if we're theorizing about what a just society should look like, we should assume that persons are better than you and me are. And the intuition behind this is, look, could we have a just society if it were completely populated by knaves? Right? Would a society really be just if people were bad? On the other side is our non-ideal theorists, and non-ideal theorists say, look, it's kind of a silly thing to do, right? What might be a good set of institutions for moral angels could work out pretty bad if we were not, in fact, moral angels, right? So it's sort of an application of uh, what economists call the general theory of the second best, right? So if you remove one feature of the good society, it doesn't follow that all the other features will still still remain after that. So non-ideal theorists, they say, well, look, when we're theorizing about, theorizing about institutions, um, you know, we should focus on how people actually are. So uh, a, a, famous, a famous passage from Rousseau, who is a non-ideal theorist, is we're going to take men as they are and laws as they might be. So that's sort of the non-ideal uh, side, side of the coin. And in terms of the east of Eden and west of Babel, that's actually not my distinction. I actually stole that from Dick Wagner, who is one of our colleagues uh, here in the F.A. Hayek program. And so when Dick talks about that, Dick is referencing um, a, a sort of conceptual tools that social scientists use. So he says the East of Eden uh, social scientist, what makes them an East of Eden social scientist is they compare current state of affairs to some ideal perfect state. Right, so I guess you know, general equilibrium economists might be an example. So say, hey, look at how the current market's actually functioning. This would be what the outcome would be, you know, if we achieved general equilibrium. But you know, we're not there, so we have a market failure, and we need to fix it. Versus a non-ideal theorist doesn't really do those comparative analytics. They just mostly focus on actual processes that are currently currently in place without doing those comparisons. So ideal versus non-ideal, that's about how you are modeling the individual and so thinking of... It's about, it's a, so to, for, to put it in terms of that an economist would find acceptable, it's about... Yes, please dumb it down yeah, for me. No, Brian. no, I'm just, you know, trying to, <laughs> trying to build bridges across, yeah. It's about what should people's preferences be when we theorize about justice. Right? Should they be very different from what our preferences are actually like, or should the preferences be what they kind of look like for for you and me actually? Right. Yeah. When you were describing the ideal perspective, I could imagine that someone who held that view might argue, why would we ever want to accept people as they already are? Because part of the goal of philosophy is, I think, like you say in this paper, <coughs> is we want to 
figure out ways to live better. We're striving for, as you said in your definition in the beginning, yeah. good, truth, beauty. So why shouldn't we want to be, be giving something people have to a more for? aspirational model? Yeah. What the person? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think so. I think a lot of non-philosophers, when they hear this debate, they, I think they kind of think ideal theory is silly. Like, you know, why would you theorize about a utopia? Filled with, filled with perfect beings, you know. Um, but I think there are compelling arguments in its favor. I'm not convinced by them. I think the non-ideal position is the right to go, but think about uh, a comparison. So here's a moral imperative that I'm pretty convinced is true. Murder is wrong. Um, it's an unfortunate case about society that there's probably always going to be people who murder, but just because there are going to be people who murder, do we really want to alter the imperative that people ought not murder? It seems like right. if we encou encounter Joe, who's a kind of a murdering son of a, and we say, look, even though you're a murderer, you still should not do that, right? We're not going to change our moral or normative demands to fit with with your imperfections. We're going to demand that you live up to the demand, the our, our moral standards. But on the flip side, you say, well. You know, we shouldn't, this is something that G.A. Cohen, a very famous socialist philosopher, argued for. He's like, look, if people were morally perfect, it's obvious that we would want to be socialists. And, you know, there's a lot of, he doesn't think about the epistemic problems and the role of, Mark. but just, just sidebar those for a minute. There's actually something kind of compelling to that. I say, yeah, you know, if we were morally perfect, maybe... We would want to be socialists, but then that's not that's kind of a silly question, right? We're not morally perfect, so we shouldn't be socialists. So we can give cases where it seems like ideal theory is compelling with the murder case, but then some cases it's less compelling. So it's 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 a diff difficult philosophical question what assumptions we should adopt. idea that if we were all morally perfect socialist society could work uh that that sets to the side the epistemic problem and so just to yeah. clarify you're referring there to the idea that even in a universe of perfect moral agents we still have this need to solve the economic problem given Absolutely. that we live in a world of scarcity yeah so no one even if we were morally perfect we still wouldn't know what the price of milk should be right yeah um so we still need prices for that but so just but trying to be charitable to Cohen, he doesn't consider that issue, at least last time I read it, I didn't didn't find it. But I mean, certainly there is, you know, something to what he says, even though I think he's probably wrong at the end of the day. Certainly you could imagine a lot of practices that are problematic today working more effectively uh, in a world where people were more, more morally perfect, like mm. democratic institutions maybe. Sure, absolutely. Um, less problems with corruption and things like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so ideal versus non-ideal theory. We're thinking about people in a realistic way. And then why is, it wh why is that not enough? Why do we need to add the secondary distinction that not only do we need to think about people as they actually exist, but we also need to practice science 
in this West of Babel way? Yeah, so I think I think in a lot of ways the the way I fall on these two questions line up with the insights of public choice theory in the Virginia School of Political Economy and Hayek and Austrian economics. So, you know, for public choice reasons, I think we should go the non-ideal route, even though there might be compelling arguments in favor of ideal theory. Um, you know, if we implemented institutions under the assumption of perfect benevolent leaders, uh, that could have very bad consequences given that our leaders are often not like that. And then in terms of the East of Eden, West of Battle, should we theorize about perfect end states, perfect sets of institutions we want to reach, or should we just focus on processes that help us live together? I think there's a lot of problems with sort of sketching utopias even under assumptions about non-ideal actors. So we could say, okay, um, let's assume people are, are morally like you and me, they're flawed. We could still ask, what would a perfect society look like given that assumption? Um, I think societies are too complex to ask those questions in a manner that can be answered, right? So by that I mean there's too many variables that interact with each other. Uh, even with our best social science, we're pretty bad at modeling the effects of far-off institutions and how they'll work out mm -hmm. for reasons that Hayek gave, right? Society's complex. You know, these rules, we don't understand what they're doing, where they came from. Altering them can be a big problem. So I think that gives us really good reasons to not think about you know, if we could remake society, what would it look like? I think we said, no, we should take people as they are and think about what are small changes we can make that can help us live better together. So if we're going to avoid constructing utopias populated by perfect people, mm -hmm. what are philosophers doing instead? What's the alternative? I think they can consider smaller forms of social change, smaller iterations of different uh, rules we live by and then think about the normative status or the moral status of these rules. And this is actually something that philosophers kind of used to do. So it really wasn't, in my view, it wasn't until John Rawls where the project became, let's think about what a utopia looks like. So if you read John Stuart Mill, if you read his really underappreciated work, Considerations on Representative Government, what he's doing is he's not sketching a utopia, He's comparing, you know, different methods of voting, different ways of institutionalizing a legislature. He's saying, hey, you know, if we go with secret versus open voting, these are the costs and benefits. And, you know, it's not just uh, costs and benefits in terms of the economic impact, or the pu but we can also think about, is there something morally problematic if we adopted a different voting rule than the one we currently do? So there's still plenty of room for normative analysis. It's just at a smaller scale. It's what the... It's what the object of the analysis is about. It's about smaller things rather than bigger things. Yeah, and for me, when I read John Stuart Mill, and I'm thinking in particular here of the subjection of women, but I think this yeah, could be true yeah. of some of his other work as well, you get the sense that he's really trying to grapple with an actual problem yeah. in the sense yeah, that you, you could take some of the implications and the conclusion from that and imagine it in like a newspaper editorial. Well, he wrote newspaper editorials. Yeah. <laughs> and his, his, him and his buddy Jeremy Bentham. Um, so there was a lot of debates happening in Britain that these two philosophers were incredibly influential in terms of how they influenced. So one thing that I've been kind of thinking about lately is um, open and secret voting, right? So secret voting right now is how most liberal democracies 
how people cast their ballots in elections, but it used to be very, very different. Uh, it used to be that there was public polling places and you would go up and you would look the official in the eye and say who you were voting for. That's an interesting system. It's interesting to think about what that would look like, but Bentham was a, a fierce agitator in favor of the secret ballot. Mill was opposed to this. Mill actually thought, no, 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 no. Our election should occur with people, was while with us being able to observe each other's votes, and they and it, it, it was you know it was a, a moral normative analysis of these two different institutions, but it's something that did actually matter because it's you know I think it was 1872 when uh, that's probably wrong, but <laughs> uh, when they officially shifted from from open to secret voting in Britain. What do you think the scope is in philosophy today for that kind of work that is? attempting to grapple with an urgent contemporary moral quandary. Do, do you think that's something that's invited or is it discouraged in some ways? Um, wow, that's an interesting question. Um, the the cop-out answer is that for asking how easy is it to publish on those sorts of issues, I mean, it depends on the journal. There's a lot of journals who that are, I think, starting to publish more on you know, philosophical analyses of more practical questions. So um, I, I think I'm seeing more of this in, like, the Journal of Political Philosophy. I think they're doing a good job. Um, I think I've seen some papers along those lines in, like, philosophy and public affairs. But then there are other journals that are sort of uninterested in those questions, and they don't review my work. And, <laughs> it, and, it, hurt, and it hurts my feelings. <laughs> Makes me sad. <laughs> so, so does that... <laughs> Does that acceptance for this type of research in some journals, does that give you optimism that the field is moving in this uh, direction that you view to be positive? Um, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, you know, I think a lot, so a lot of philosophers are still doing the ideal theory um, East of Eden approach. I still think that's the dominant method. I think more people are jumping over to the non-ideal smaller scope kind of theorizing but i th i mean th this is a personal judgment i could be you know i could be wrong and, and i have all my biases and i think the majority is still on the one side it's an interesting question how and why academic fields change the way they do um i'm not sure I c i'm capable of giving a meaningful prediction about that yeah but i you mean I, I can tell you where i hope it goes but uh, that's you know hope don't float would that be ideal Theorizing. That would be ideal theorizing. Yeah. We better avoid it then. Um, you already briefly mentioned John Rawls. I did. Um, John Rawls has been a contributor to primarily uh, ideal Poli theorizing. Political philosophy, yeah. Um, what role do you think, uh, well, actually, what role has his work played in what you do? Mm -hmm. Because if I'm not mistaken, you have done some ideal theorizing as well as non-ideal theorizing, or at least have interest in those. You're shaking, he's shaking his head, so I'm going to let you respond to that. Um, well, it's, I think it's a complicated question what uh, Rawls's influence on the field of political philosophy um, and his influences on me. So my view is that um, a lot of contemporary political philosophers probably... Um, are too close to Rawls, you know, he's sort of treated as um, oracular rather than, you know, and, and held in, in those kinds of lights. Um, 
And I think outside of philosophy, at least like a lot of economists I know sort of have a disparaging view of Rawls. And I think the correct view is somewhere in the middle. Um, so it is true that Rawls was an ideal theorist. So he has his great book, A Theory of Justice, which was published in 1971. And he goes, I'm going to tell you what a just society looks like. And it's, it's a society governed by his two principles of justice. The first principle is pretty, um, pretty non-controversial. It says equal basic liberty for all. It's the second principle that people kind of fuss over, and that, princi and that principle says inequality should be organized so that it maximizes the welfare of the least advantage. Right? So inequality is only acceptable if it makes the least off people better off. Um, and he's an ideal theorist, so when he thinks about the institutions that would actually uh, flesh out those principles, he's using assumptions that people are better than you and me actually are, and he lands on some version of what he calls market socialism, so a very kind of left-wing view. First, I think the first thing that really interested and influenced me about Rawls is he was no real stranger to, to economics, so in his whole apparatus, he was actually one of the earlier adopters of rational choice and game theory. He actually took game theory courses from John von Neumann at Princeton. Oh, wow. Um, kind of, you know, people don't know that. And there's a lot of very sophisticated economics happening in the book that I think a lot of people don't catch up on. I think the question he's asking is m misguided, but I really kind of fell in love with the method there, that using tools from other, discipline, other disciplines to help answer philosophical questions. I think the other people, the thing that people miss out on Rawls is that the view he kind of originally articulated, the one we just talked about in the theory of justice, he sort of abandoned it later on for a different project. And I think the different project is actually quite interesting, and it's a little closer to like the non-ideal sort of view. So, you know, he in in the book he says, "Here's what a just society looks like." I just told you it's governed by my principles. And then sometime in the 1980s, he goes, "Well, you know, it's probably actually pretty implausible that we could ever realize this ideal." You know, people disagree too much to ever all come to accept the same principles of justice. There's too much diversity in the world, and it just couldn't work out. So then he launches into this big second project in the book Political Liberalism. And there he's asking a very different question, right? So in, in a theory of justice, he's asking the question, what would a perfectly just society look like? In political liberalism, he's asking a question, how can good-willed and competent persons who reasonably disagree with each other how can we find ways of living together that somehow strike us as all morally acceptable? And I think that's actually a really interesting and fascinating question. You know, how do we live together despite the fact that we disagree and we're never going to agree with each other? And that's the part of Rawls that I think is actually pretty interesting. But when people kind of disparage him, they're thinking of the earlier utopian, you know, what does a perfectly just society look like? So you brought up his incorporation of economics and political ideas into his philosophy as something that maybe inspired you to go in this PPE direction. Yeah. And, and w so we've been talking PPE kind of around that idea quite a lot already. The, you know, the acronym, of course, stands for uh, philosophy, politics, and economics. Mm -hmm. um, but what does it really mean to do that kind of interdisciplinary work? Is it just, you know, we can just throw anybody who has one of those, uh, you know, letters 
after their doctorate in a room together and that counts as PPE. Or, Absolutely. Or, or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, well, we have, in a, we, practice it might we have an E and a P right now, so we're almost there. Yeah, <laughs> two-thirds of the way <laughs> Two there. Two-thirds of the way there. Um, so that's actually uh, another controversial question about what PPE even is. Um, so one interesting thing that's happening is you're having a lot of new undergraduate PPE majors sprouting around up around the United States. So PPE is a very famous major in the UK. Um, it was implemented at Ox Oxford, I think, in 1932. And a lot of very famous prime ministers and such read PPE. They don't major in PPE. They read PPE at Oxford. Um, but it's sort of sprouting up around the U.S. And at the University of Maryland, we're going to have a program starting in the fall, which is two weeks, which is I just, I just realized how soon that is. Um, but so a lot of people just think PPE is, yeah, it's a grab bag. You do PPE if you know a little economics, a little political science, a little philosophy. I, I disagree with these people. I think that's the wrong view. The way I define PPE is you're asking questions that have traditionally been the domain of philosophy. So you're asking a lot of normative questions, but you're trying to answer those questions using, in part, the tools and methods of political science and economics. right? So philosophical questions... But the other two disciplines come in in terms of giving actually compelling, helpful answers to those questions. Yeah. What are some of the uh, what What do you purchase with that? Oh yeah. So so philosophers like to give answers to the question of of you know morally acceptable levels of inequality, but certainly economic factors matter as well if we want to think about actually implementing it. So what if achieving you know Rawls's desirable level of inequality uh, shrunk the size of the economic pie by half. Well, is it worth it then? I don't think so. Now, maybe you do. Maybe someone does think it is, but certainly, like it's at least a trade-off that needs to be confronted um, when asking these questions. I think another way to think about it is Pete Becky loves to say this a lot. I think he's paraphrasing Hayek is that economics puts um, constraints on people's utopia, right? So. We can think about what would be the best set of institutions, what would be the best policies we could implement, but we need to think about what might happen if we <laughs> implemented them. We need to think about feasibility. We need to think about considerations we never thought would play into the question. So I think that's what, what PP, how the, how the other P and the E come help the first P. It's so great you're building a program where undergraduates can start learning that kind of combined method early. I, this might be a sociology of the discipline question, so maybe it's one again that we're not really capable of answering. But one I'll of the try things my best. <laughs> one of the things I've observed being around PPE circles is that it's really difficult to do genuine interdisciplinary work. Oh yeah, and it's difficult as an economist to really be at a level with the philosophical literature where you can get the respect of that kind of camp. Yeah. And it's difficult also for philosophers to be tooled up enough on their economics that they can get the respect of a room full of economists. I certainly haven't. <laughs> well, there's only one economist in this room, but you, you've you accomplished that goal today. Aww. You've gotten the respect of the economists in this the room. the nicest thing you ever said to me. You're welcome. Um, yeah, no, I, I, th I think that's completely right. So, like, some anecdotes. Um, I had a paper that I was pretty proud of. It was about... Um, how to interpret Kenneth Arrow's impossibility theorem. So 
Kenneth Arrow is a famous economist, won the Nobel Prize, um, and he has this theorem that just says, when it comes to different ways of aggregating preferences, there's these certain um, attractive desiderata that we would want to be satisfied, uh, and it turns out that there exists no way of aggregating preferences that can actually satisfy all of them. So it's supposed to be sort of a bummer kind of theorem. Um, and this theorem, a lot of people interpret it as saying, well, democracy just can't work. Democracy is going to, oh, you know, no matter what voting rule we choose, we're always going to have irrational, horrible outcomes. So this is just bad news for the Democrat. But on the first page of Arrow's book, he says that his formal result applies not only to systems of voting, but to the market as a system of aggregating preferences too. But no one ever says, well, you know, what, you know, Arrow's theorem shows us that the market is a fundamentally irrational system. You've never heard that before. Right. So I wrote a paper trying to like explore this. Uh, what I think is a really interesting question is, you know, to what extent does Arrow's theorem apply to the market? And I sent it to philosophy journals and it got rejected like 10 times and it wouldn't even get reviewed. They said, this isn't philosophy. We don't know what you're doing. So then I tried to send it to economics and political science journals and they said, well, this isn't economics or political science. We don't know what you're doing. And this, you know, I thought it was a, a fine piece of scholarship, but it, I mean, it was quite literally rejected about 20 times without ever being reviewed by all these different philosophy editors, econ economics editors, political science editors. So it's incredibly hard to, you know, do work at the intersection of these disciplines and still gain the respect of the persons in the disciplines. But I think there are some ways around that, but it's it's not an easy task. Yeah, what, what are the productive ways to approach it? Is it about uh, institution building, like you're doing building this department, and, and maybe journals as well, establishing journals that are more in that interdisciplinary space? Or is it more about the nature of conversation in universities? I think it's all of that, so I think journals would be would be uh, good and important. We have a few that are sympathetic to this line of work. I think a big thing for people who are interested in doing PPE scholarship is um, building really reliable um, networks of co-authors. So a lot of pieces that um, you know use economic models to answer philosophical questions. A lot of times I do those with economists or with people p with PhDs in economics or PhDs in political science, right? So, you know, I bring the philosophical question and they say, hey, you know, uh, a general equilibrium model could help answer this. And they say, okay, I can go build that. And they come back and then I sort of say, okay, what are the philosophical implications of the model? So I've had a lot of success with that. But the problem with that is there's still incentive incompatibility issues because, there are not a lot of journals that would take a paper. Um, there are not a lot of journals that, you know, would help both a philosopher and an economist who are trying to advance career goals, right? So you could publish in a great philosophy journal, but then the economist says, well, what have you done for me? And then you, maybe you can publish it in an economics journal, but then the philosopher is kind of left out. So there's still institutional challenges there, but, um, you know, we're working on it. We're pushing forward. You'll just have to write double the number of papers that That's you can satisfy both parties. Well, I'm going for triple. <laughs> but <laughs> so I think this idea of finding co-authors and working directly with economists, um, I think that brings us to kind of one last thing I wanted to yeah. touch on a little bit today while I have you here. Um, which is the program that we met through. So that's the Adam Smith Fellowship Program. Yes. Um, I 
I think when I came back to start working at Mercatus, you were in your second year in the program already. I was just a lad. Just a young lad. Just a lad. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your experience in that program and those discussions and how that contributed to your work, both in this PPE interdisciplinary sense, but also just generally? In yeah, it was it was unequivocally the best thing I did in graduate school was being a part of the Adam Smith Fellowship. Um, I probably shouldn't say this, but I think I got more benefit attending the Adam Smith um, colloquia than I did taking a lot of courses in my PhD program. Obviously, you learn a lot about Hayek, you learn a lot about Buchanan, you learn a lot about the Ostroms and people in the history of political economy, which is all great. But the big thing is the relationships you adopt, you you build. So a lot of my co-authors I met through the Adam Smith fellowship um, and those are lasting relationships I still have today and even beyond just that it's it's you get to hear what people in other disciplines think about what you're working on so like you'll sit down next to an anthropologist or a sociologist um, and you'll say hey what do you work on and you like you'll give your elevator pitch and then you know they might some say something very dismissive or they might ask you more questions but usually what they're going to say about your research agenda is very different than anything anyone in your discipline would say. And that's the most valuable thing because you just get all these interesting questions about, oh, now here's a, here's a way I can attack the problem that I would have never thought of before. And it's all because, you know, a diversity of views are present. Um, so, yeah, and any graduate students listening should uh, unequivocally and without a doubt apply to be a part of it. Well, thank you. That's very kind. But, yeah, that's been my experience, too, is that, in those kind of discussions where you have so many different disciplines represented in a small room, you do get this kind of egalitarianness between the yeah. different disciplines that you don't necessarily get when you are the economist going into a philosophy department yeah. or, or vice versa. Um, Absolutely. It, so that's cool. Is there any particular advice that you would give to a graduate student who is interested in PPE and considering applying for the, um, the Smith Fellowship? Um, First, apply for it. Um, and second, I guess my advice would be be honest about why you apply for it and be honest about your shortcomings. So I don't think you need to say in your application that I'm an expert in Austrian economics and Virginia political economy, and that's going to get me in. I think you should say, hey, I think I don't really know that much about Austrian economics, but I think it'd be r really valuable in terms of what it could do for my research agenda. And I think that's actually a pretty compelling person to accept in the program. I have no control. So I, that could be wrong because I have no control over who <laughs> goes into that. They, I could have just made that up, but I would, I would want people who, you know, don't really know what they're getting into, but knowing that it could be super helpful for them down the road. My guest today has been Brian Kogelman. Brian, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.